You'll be turning in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the end of chapter 6 and the first part of chapter 7. And out of curiosity, how, how are we doing so far throughout the book of Ecclesiastes? What's the overall feel for the book? Are we, are we ready for it to be over with? Are we excited about it? Okay, that's, that's good. That's what I want to hear. Look together with me at chapter 6, verse 10. I'm going to be beginning, I'm going to begin reading in verse 10. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 14 of chapter 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Father, we again come before You, and Your Word is open before our eyes, and we seek Your face here in Your Word. And we ask now that You would help us. You would help us to do so. Father, without Your help, without the filling of Your Spirit, we are helpless, and we will not be able to understand, and we will not be able to receive Your Word as we should be, as we are called to be. So I ask that You would fill me with Your Spirit as I speak to Your people, as I seek to proclaim Your Word to them. Help me to speak it clearly in a way that is understandable. Also help me to, to proclaim it with passion. And also ask that You would be with those who are listening. 
May you be with them, O Lord, as they listen to your word. May they see it, may they hear it, and may they cling to it with with joy. May they see that you and you alone possess the words of life. It's in Christ's name we ask and pray these things. Amen. As we come now to the, the halfway point, so we've made it halfway through the book now. As we come to chapter 6, verse 10, this is about the midway point of the book. So as we come now to the halfway point, we have seen some, some pretty dark and depressing things. Things that we don't necessarily like to think about. Things like the, the repetitiveness of our world. How it never seems to go anywhere or accomplish anything. And the reality that most of the time our lives look very similar. We have seen the truth about the seasons and times of our own lives, how we don't have control over them. Like we like to think that we have control over them. The seasons and times of our lives. We have no control when they come or when they go. We've seen the reality of death and of the graves. The reality that we're all going to die. That we're all going to be buried in the grave if Christ doesn't come back first. And something that we've seen especially over the the past few chapters is the sinfulness of all mankind. The sinfulness of our very own hearts. The sinfulness of your very own heart. We have seen that we are a broken people who have the potential to do horrible things to ourselves and to others. This is the dark reality of our world. The reality that dwells under the sun. Now, don't get me wrong, the preacher has shown us some beautiful things throughout this book, like the poems about creation that we saw in chapter 1, and then the the poem about time that we saw in chapter 3. There is beauty to be seen in those things. And we are also going to see more beauty before it's over with. But overall, the the tone and the pictures that we have seen throughout this book have been sobering ones. And at this point, the halfway point of the book, I think that the preacher knows that we may be tempted to reject or to fight against this reality that he has been painting for us. I think he knows and understands well enough the human heart and the tendency that it has to craft a fantasy land, a fantasy world. And so as we come to this section of the book, he wants to give us a reminder. And he says in verse 10, Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? So the reminder that the preacher gives us here at the halfway point of his book is the sovereignty of God in all things. Because... In verse 11, the 
the stronger one that he refers to. Or excuse me, verse 10. The, the stronger one that he refers to in verse 10 is God. God is the stronger one. He is the one who has named everything, which is just a picture of authority. In the Bible, when someone named something, they were showing authority over that thing or over that person. And we still see that in a way today. I mean, parents name their children. They have authority over their children, and so they name them. And so God is seen here as naming everything. And He's also seen to know everything, including man. So these ugly, these dark, these hard-to-swallow pictures that we've been looking at throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, God has already named them all. He knows them all. He is the one who has who has and who continues to bring them to pass. He is sovereign over all things. And if you choose to argue against that, if you choose to dispute with this stronger one, then you are being a fool. Because as the preacher says, the more words that you speak, the more words that come out of your mouth in trying to argue against God, it's just more and more vanity. It's almost like a man digging himself into a deeper hole, except for the hole is filled with vanity. You're going deeper and deeper into vanity. And there is no advantage whatsoever for man to bring his argument or his case before God. It's not going to work. That's what he's showing us here. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? And we see a picture of this, what it looks like to, to argue with God, to bring a case before God, in the book of Job. In the book of Job, now I don't want to be too hard on Job, let me be clear on that, because overall, Job is portrayed as a good and righteous man, a man who was pleasing to God. We see that at the beginning of the book of Job. But God tests Job. He brings all of this suffering upon him. And at first... Job is faithful, and he says, The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the midst of immense suffering. Who says that? So that's his, that's his righteousness, that's his, his good character put on display there. But throughout the book, as Job continues to suffer greatly, he begins to question God. He, he says to himself that he hasn't done anything wrong. He doesn't deserve the suffering that he's been given. And he wants to make his case before God. So in a way, he wants to argue against God. And eventually, he gets that opportunity because God appears before him in a whirlwind, as the Bible tells us. And this is what God says to Job. In Job chapter 38, the Lord says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. That's your argument. Human being. Creature. That's what your argument looks like. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And he continues. He tells Job, Dress for action like a man. 
I will question you and you make it known to me. In other words, he's saying to Job, you think you know how to run things better than I do? You think you understand more than I do? Dress for action. I will ask you a question. You make it known to me. Tell me the answer, Job. And then you have chapter after chapter after chapter of the Lord asking questions to Job. And all Job can do is put his hand over his mouth because he does not know the answer. And the first question is like the biggest one. He asks Job, he says, Where were you when I made the foundations of the earth? Tell me their measurements. Surely you know. He's showing the foolishness of what it looks like to bring an argument before God. And again, God approaches Job in chapter 40. And He says, Who is this? And I'm paraphrasing here. Who is this fault finder that would argue against God? Who is this fault finder who would bring a case who would argue against God? So this is what our arguments, this is what our our case that we would like to make against God because we're not happy, because we don't like the things, the way things are going. That's what it all looks like. It's foolishness to try and contend with God, to dispute with the one who is stronger than us. And so in light of that, in light of not being able to change anything, in light of not being able to contend with God, the one who is stronger than us, how should we live? How should we live in light of this broken world that God has brought because of sin and rebellion? Remember, that's how all of this took place. Man sinned. God cursed creation. So how are we to live in light of that? And this is a question that the the author of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, set out from the very beginning of the book to answer. He said he wants to find out what is good for man to do. And that's what we're going to see here. And he says, in verse 12, he asks two questions. In light of all of those things, in light of the truth that it is foolish to try and argue with God because of the way that things are, he asks two questions. He asks, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? That's the first question. Then the second question, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So in other words, the first question is, what is good for man to do while he lives his short life? What is good for man to do? What is good for us to do while we live our short lives under the sun? And we're going to see that first question answered in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 7. Verses 1 to 12 are going to answer what is good for us to do. And then the second question, who can tell man what will happen next under the sun? Or who can tell man what will happen in the coming days under the sun? And that question is going to be answered in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7. So let's begin by walking through verses 1 to 12 and see the answer that the preacher has for us there. The answer to the question, 
what is good for man to do while he lives under the sun? And in short, the answer is live a life filled with wisdom. Because like we saw in chapter 2, you remember the preacher weighed wisdom and folly. And he said that wisdom came out on top. That wisdom had more gain than foolishness did. So that's what he's commending here. He's commending wisdom. And as we go through these verses, they're all built around that word good that you see in verse 12 where he says, what is good for man to do? All 12 verses are built around that one word. And you can kind of see it in our English translation. At first he says a good name. And then you see the word better, so good and better. Well, in the Hebrew language, they're the same word. So we can still see it partly in our language, but in the Hebrew language you would be able to tell that they're all built around that one word that he uses. So what is good? And as we go through, we're also we're going to see five things that he names off. Five good things. And the first thing that we see is in verses 1 to 4. The first good thing that we see is that it is good to learn from death. It is good to learn from death. That's what verses 1 to 4 are all about. The wise person does not run from death, but he learns from it. And he begins by saying, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Now, during the the Old Testament and New Testament time period, ointment or precious oils that had healing properties were very valuable. Now, in our day, we read this and we say precious ointment. Ointment, you know, what's so precious about ointment? I can just go to the pharmacy and you know, buy it for four bucks or whatever. Well, in their day, you couldn't do that. So this oil, this ointment was very precious. And you, like, think of that picture in the New Testament whenever, uh, oh, I can't remember the woman who does it. But she breaks that alabaster flask over Jesus' head, anoints Him with that oil, and you know, all the, the disciples were like, why did you do that? We could have sold it and got the money. So there you see its value. This stuff was expensive. And so what the preacher is doing here is that he is comparing a good name or a reputation, a good reputation, he's comparing it with something that is very valuable. And he does something similar in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1. He says a good name, again, reputation, is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. So again, you have... A reputation, a good reputation being put up against something that's very valuable and he's saying that the reputation is to be chosen above all of these things. And then similarly, a good name, a good reputation is better just like the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now that's very strange. Why would you say that? You know, why, how could the day of death be better than the day of birth? Well, what he's saying here is not that it's better to die than to live. Now, I want to lay a couple things out. 
because we have been looking at, in the New Testament, in Philippians, Paul saying that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's true. Because as a Christian, when you die, you receive Christ. And that is gain. So in that sense, it is better to die. As Paul said, he wanted, he would rather die so he could have Christ. But that's not what he's talking about here. That's not what the preacher has in view here. Remember, he's talking about what is under the sun. And so as far as under the sun, it's better to live than to die. And so what he's saying here is that the day of death is better because you can learn from it rather than from the day of birth. And that's also why he parallels it with the good reputation. Because where do you learn the importance of a good reputation? It's not on the day of birth. The child that we're, that we're there celebrating on the day of birth, it doesn't have a reputation. Its life is just beginning. There's no reputation to be seen there. But when you go to a funeral, when you go and see the day of death, you have someone's beginning and their end all put before you in that moment. And you are able to see their reputation, whether it was a good reputation or if it was a bad reputation. And so he's saying here that when you look at the day of death and learn from it, you can see the importance of what it means to live life well. Because when you look at the day of death, that's when you begin to think of what a good life looks like. You don't think about those things in the maternity ward. And so Christian, what reputation should we be striving for in life and in death? What reputation should be seen in our lives and what reputation should be seen at our funerals? It shouldn't be the possessions that you have. It shouldn't be how much stuff you have, how much money you possess. When somebody sees you, when they see your reputation, what should come to mind is that this person knows Christ. They know Him. And they enjoy Him. When people see you, brothers and sisters, they should see Jesus. And they should also see that even in your funeral. When they go to a Christian's funeral, when we go to a Christian's funeral, we rejoice, do we not? Because what we see is the glory of Christ put on display in what they have done in that person's life. And that they have gained in that moment, as Paul says. So we learn from death. And in learning from death, we learn to live well. And this is also what flows through verses 2 to 4. It, the fact that it is better to go and to learn from death than to run away from it, which is what the foolish person does. So the wise person, he goes into the house of mourning. 
Whereas the foolish person, he goes into the house of feasting. Or he goes into the house of mirth, which is just a picture of happiness. The foolish person surrounds themselves with things that distract them from the reality of death. They don't want to think about it. You know, get death away from me. Well, one day it's going to come whether they like it or not. And their death is going to be a sad story because they never thought about it at all. But for the wise person who does go to the house of mourning, who does, as he says in verse 4, the heart of the wise being in the house of, in, in mourning, in the house of mourning, for the wise person who does take those things to heart, their, their death will not be a sad story like the foolish person's death will be because they have thought about it deeply. They are prepared for it. And as we were talking about a moment ago, they know Christ, the one who gives life even in the midst of death. So we are not to be foolish like the person who denies the reality of death until it can no longer be avoided. And Moses also picked up on this language in Psalm 90, in verse 12. Moses wrote, he said, So teach us to number our days talking to the Lord, speaking to the Lord. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So in numbering our days, in looking at death and considering it, we receive a heart of wisdom. So we are to be like the wise and not like the foolish person who denies it. The second good thing that we see is that death, excuse me, is that it is good from, it is good to learn from correction. The second thing is that it is good to learn from correction, and that is verses 5 and 6. He says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. What he's showing us here is a person who, the wise person, they surround themselves with people who show them their faults, who tell them when they've made mistakes, who seek to build them up with their comments, with their rebukes. That's what the rebuke of the wise is like. But the foolish person, on the other hand, they surround themselves with yes-men you could say. People who just want to say good things about you. Who just want to tell you how good of a person you are. You know, you did such a great job, even if you failed utterly. They just want to make you feel good. And, and it does make you feel good, doesn't it? I mean, when people say good things to you, it makes you feel good. Warm and fuzzy inside and all that good stuff. But it's not going to last. Because it doesn't build your character. There's no constructive criticism going on there. Yeah, you feel good, but you're not growing. You think you're, you think you're great when actually you're utterly foolish. And he compares it to the crackling of thorns under a pot. It's what the foolish laughter is like or the foolish comments. It's what they're like. 
It's like a fire that's built with thorns that, that crack and pop and give off heat, but it doesn't last. It should have been built with thick wood. That heat would have lasted. And so that's what the, the comments of the wise are like. They are like a well-built fire, and the comments of the foolish are like a poor fire that's built with, with thorns that crack and pot but will go out quickly. Again, we see something similar in the book of Proverbs. In chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. So the person who loves and accepts the rebuke of the wise, they love knowledge. But he who hates reproof, who hates correction, is stupid. That's the language he uses. Very straightforward. There's really no wiggling around that. You can either accept the rebuke of the wise, or you can be like the foolish person and be considered stupid. So the person who rejects wise correction is like the fool. And the person who accepts it, who welcomes it, is like the wise. The third good thing that we should put into practice is to be cautious with money. This comes from verse 7. The third good thing that we see is that we should put, we should be cautious with money. And he says, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Now this third good thing, or this third wise saying that we see here in verse 7, comes as a a warning. The preacher is giving a, a warning here. He's showing that although money is a good gift from God, if it's used in an unwise way, it can even corrupt the wisest of person. So he is commending caution here. And think about the examples that we've just looked at in chapter 5 and chapter 6. You know, all of those men who were given wealth and possessions and who ruined their lives because they worshiped them, because they didn't treat them wisely. That's what's going on here. We must be cautious with our money. It is a good gift from God. But if we do not use it well, if we don't hold to it loosely, like we saw in chapter 4, you know, hold loosely to the things that you have, share with others, love your neighbor, then it will destroy us. Money, and not just money, but possessions as well. The good gifts of God, they will, they will destroy us if we cling to them. So do we hold loosely to our money? Do we hold loosely to the gifts that God has given to us? Are we willing to share them? Does it bring us joy to share them? Or do we just, here, have it? That's a good way to gauge your heart. Do you cling to your money? Or do you realize that one day you're going to lose it all? So share it with those who God has given to you. The fourth good thing that we should put into practice is patience. Being patient and slow to anger. And he says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. 
Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. And in the first part of verse 8, in the first part of verse 8, what the preacher is showing us is a, a person who, because of impatience, never finishes anything. He is a person who is known to start many projects, you could say, but he never completes any of them. And that's what he means by saying, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. So if you start a bunch of stuff, if you have a bunch of beginnings, but there's never an end to them, then what do you really have? You have unfinished work, which really amounts to nothing. And so he's saying here that it's better to be patient and to finish one thing than to start many things but never complete them. To be like that is foolish because you never get anywhere. And then he continues in the second part of verse 8. And we, show, and we see that impatience has the tendency to lead to anger. So if you are a person who is quick-tempered, then the preacher says that you are a fool. It's, it's foolish and unwise to be quick-tempered. Because that's what impatience leads, leads to. If you do not exercise patience and you constantly you know, get worked up or get mad about small things that if you did have patience could have overlooked them or have solved them. If you constantly get mad and worked up about those little things and you're a fool. He's saying you're, you're foolish to act this way. Because when you make decisions based off of anger, there are severe consequences that usually come along with those decisions that are made in anger. So be patient. And patience is also one of the fruits of the Spirit that Paul names. So if you are quick-tempered, then you need to gauge your heart. You need to examine yourself. I mean, patience doesn't need to be perfect in your life. It will not be perfect. But if you never exercise patience, if you constantly get mad over small and insignificant things, then it may be because the Spirit of God does not indwell you in the first place. So you need to examine yourself. Are you a patient person? Do you have that fruit of the Spirit? The fifth and last good thing that the preacher has for us to put into practice is do not dwell on the past. Nostalgia. Do not dwell on the past. He says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now I think it's a tendency of ours that when we hear something like this, we automatically think of the older generation. Because, you know, they're, they're elderly and they constantly think back on their younger days. You know, they constantly wish that they were young again. But that's just not true. I mean, yes, it is true of the older generation, but it's also true of all of us. Because we all have beautiful memories that we would like to go back to, do we not? Memories maybe of, of a loved one that is now gone. 
Memories of a great vacation that you once experienced. Or whatever it may be. We all have these memories that we seek to go back to. That we seek to relive. And the preacher is saying here that that's foolish to think that way. Because when you think that way, when you say to yourself, I wish I could go back there, you're saying to God that what He has done for you today is not good enough. Because God is working in your life today. So when you look back and say, I want that, you're saying to Him, what you've given to me today, I don't appreciate. It's not good enough. Give me what I had then, not what I have now. Let's say for a moment that you could go back to a memory of choice, you know, whatever memory you wanted to go back to. Let's say you could go back and you could enjoy it. Once you got there, it wouldn't make you happy. The memory that you that you think so much of, that you think is so beautiful, it wouldn't make you happy. It wouldn't be as beautiful as you like to think that it would be. And I want to read from a quote that C.S. Lewis has in his book, The Weight of Glory. Because he's talking about nostalgia here in this quote. Lewis writes, The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. For it was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of, of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a far country we have not yet visited. End quote. So those memories that you cherish so much, the reason why you cherish them, the reason why you long for them, is because of the eternity that's been put in your hearts. Like what the preacher talked about in chapter 3. You know, God put eternity into man's heart. So that's what you feel in that moment when you look back. You long for the land, as Lewis says, that you have not visited yet. The land that you were made for, which is the new creation that is to come. Perfection. So how are we to treat nostalgia? How are we to treat these memories? Yes, look at them, appreciate them, long. You know, use that longing, but not to long for them Not to long backward, but to long forward for what is to come. That's how we are to treat the former days. Make them show you the future. You know, what is to come. 
Don't let God's gifts that He gives you today pass you by because you are too busy worshiping the past. Now in verses 11 to 12, we come to the preacher's conclusion to his first answer. And what he's showing us here in verses 11 and 12 is the advantage that wisdom gives to the person who possesses it, who possesses this wisdom that he's been laying out in verses 1 to 12. He says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So what he says first here in these verses, in verses 11 to 12, is that for the person who has been given an inheritance, if they have wisdom, if they have been given the advantage of wisdom, then they will use their inheritance well, because wisdom will give them the ability to do so. The foolish person, on the other hand, who does not have wisdom, will most likely waste it, because they are not wise. So you see the advantage of wisdom there. It's good to have wisdom in in an inheritance. That's the first picture. The second picture is that wisdom, like money, gives a certain type of protection to the one who possesses it. So you think of the rich. They have a certain protection because of the money that they have. And wisdom is similar. For the person who possesses wisdom, it gives a a protection. Because think of the foolish person who doesn't have wisdom. Most of the time, the foolish person lives the reckless life. And bad things happen to them. You know, they don't have the protection of this wisdom, the advantage of wisdom. And this preservation of life that he talks about, what what does that mean? Well, in in the, the biblical days, in the Old and New Testament, preservation of life, long life, was seen as a blessing. And so the wise person who has been given wisdom and lives a long life has been seen to been given a blessing from God. Now that's just a general rule of thumb because that doesn't always happen. You know, sometimes a wise person, you know, dies quicker than the fool does. Again, this is just how wisdom literature works. Generally, if you have wisdom, it gives you a certain type of protection. So wisdom has an advantage to it. It gives an advantage to the one who possesses it. But now as we come to verses 13 and 14 we see that wisdom also has its limitations. It can only give us so much. Which leads to how the preacher answers the second question that he asked earlier. Who can tell man what what will happen in the coming days? He says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful. And in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The answer that we get here to that second question is the same answer that we got back in chapter 3 when he asked it there, which is no one. No one, except for God that is, can tell man what is going to come. You know, the coming days. No one can tell him. No one can make it known to him. Only God can. 
All of our wisdom that we possess, all of the wisdom of Solomon that we see here in the book of Ecclesiastes, in the book of Proverbs, it can help you live life well. It can. But it cannot show you the hidden things of God. And that's why the preacher says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? Solomon's wisdom can't straighten what God has made crookedness in the fall of creation. Our wisdom, the wisdom of all humanity, cannot straighten the crookedness of our world. All of this wisdom helps us live, but we're we're all going to face death. Remember, like he said, you know, the wise person dies just like the foolish person does. So what are we to do? You know, our greatest wisdom, it comes up short. What we need is a greater wisdom. What we need is a greater wisdom and a greater strength. And that greater wisdom and that greater strength only comes from God Himself. And that's what we see in the cross of Jesus, the wisdom of God put on display. God Himself coming down in the form of a man, 100% God, 100% man, straightening the crookedness that was brought forth in the fall. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Because Paul talks about this wisdom that we see in the cross. The wisdom that we see in God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, speaking of the gospel, to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What a picture. What a picture. Take all of Solomon's wisdom that you see in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs, and you put that against God's wisdom in that moment of the cross, and all of His wisdom for that matter. It makes Solomon look foolish. All of his wisdom, it makes him look foolish. And as Paul says here 
You know, for us, for those who are being saved, for Christians, the cross displays the wisdom of God in its fullness. The perfect image of God, Jesus Christ, taking the penalty of sin upon Himself and paying for it and restoring all things. In part now and in fullness to come in the new creation. And that's where our hope is. You know, it's not, it's not in the wisdom of Solomon. It's in the wisdom of God that we see in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and oh, how we thank You for Your wisdom. The wisdom that makes all of our wisdom look like foolishness. Father, in and of ourselves we are helpless. But thanks be to You that You paved the way for us in Christ. That You straightened what has been made crooked because of our sin, because of our rebellion. Father, may we continually look to Christ. And if there is someone here who does not know Christ, who may think that the cross is foolishness or that it is folly, may You draw them to to Yourself. May You show them Your wisdom. May You show them the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that is found in Him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.